As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations, find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We welcome you with Shanali Basak in a conversation with Goldman Sachs Chief Executive Officer David Solomon. We note that the gentleman from Hamilton College applied to Goldman Sachs a few years ago, Shanali and was rejected. That rejected was swept aside over the years, and the investment banker replacing Lloyd Blankfein about four years ago leads Goldman Sachs forward into 2023. At their conference, our Shanali Basak. Tom, thank you so much for your time, and David, thank you for joining us. You know, you have this conference here. You're entering your fifth year as CEO. You're in such a different place than you were even six months ago. Your stock is actually holding up better than every single one of your rivals. But the reality, too, is here that everyone is preparing for what could be a mild or even deeper recession. As the CEO of Goldman Sachs, how do you prepare your bank for that? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and I'm delighted to be here with you, and I appreciate your being at our financial services conference. This is the 33rd year. We've got a terrific group of clients here, and it's a great time to kind of reflect on our industry and really look at our industry going forward. I think you framed it just, just correctly. We're at a very uncertain time, an uncertain time given we're changing monetary and economic conditions very, very quickly, and that's certainly having an impact to slowing down economic activity. And so if you're running a big financial services firm, I think you have to assume that we have some bumpy times ahead, and you have to be a little bit more cautious with your financial resources, with your sizing and the footprint of the organization. I think you have to expect that activity levels are gonna be more constrained in a tougher economic environment. So we have businesses that are very, very correlated to economic growth in the world, and we're predicting economic growth will slow. Our, our economists predict 1.9% economic growth around the world uh, in 2023, which is obviously slowing growth. And the big question is, as central banks tighten monetary conditions and try to control inflation, can they do that and orchestrate, orchestrate some sort of a soft landing? And I, you know, I think that's still uncertain. I think there's a possibility of that. But I certainly think we could see a recession in 2023 also. And so I think you've got to be cautious and prepare. How then do you prepare your staff? around all of this. It's December, it's the end of the year. People are worried about jobs. People are thinking about jobs. They're thinking about pay as well. It's bonus season coming up. We've reported that you are even thinking about having lower bonuses at businesses that will have rising revenue this year. How are you thinking about this? Bring this inside your decision-making process and uh, what you're telling your staff right now. Well, we, we operate a business where every single year um, we have to pay our most important asset, which is our people. 
it shouldn't be surprising to people watching the performance of the business this year that 2021 was an exceptional year. It was a record year for the firm. It was the highest debt revenue year ever for the firm. 2022 is a different year, and so naturally, compensation will be lower. We're still early in the process of making those decisions, but just like every year, we pay for performance, and we will pay people based on the overall performance of the firm, and especially for our senior people. Um, you know, we, we consider the overall performance of the firm as we go through our compensation process. How do you balance also, you know, this year you had been reintroduced the, you know, the natural calling of headcount, the bonus discussion is not just here, it's obviously everywhere on Wall Street. How do you balance that with kind of the story that we saw just a year ago, this talent war that we saw, this booming market for people, and what's happening this year going into next year into tougher times? How do you balance retention as well as those more difficult conversations? Well, we, we take a very long-term view with, with everything we do. And you have to adjust to the environment, and so you make changes around the margin. Um, but at the same point, you know, you take a long-term view, and you try to think about your business over time. We're extremely focused on serving our clients and our core businesses. Um, our clients have been active, and so it's important for us to strike the right balance in protecting our franchise and making sure um, that our people are paid for performance. On the other hand, we're in an environment that's a tougher environment broadly. Performance is not as strong, and so we balance that. But we take a long-term view. Our people take a long-term view. Um, but I just made some comments in the, uh, in the Financial Services Forum where I said that I'm surprised by how resilient the competition for talent is. And by the way, this is just not in our industry. You're seeing across the United States and around the world that labor is still relatively tight. Talent war is not over. Talent, well, the talent war is... is is um, I think there's some headwinds given we're changing economic conditions, but the competition for talent is still very, very strong. Now, how that evolves in 2023 is unknown. Certainly, if we have a slower economic environment, it will have an effect. You can see across all industries, not just tech, that people are thinking about their headcount size and they're making, let's say, pruning cuts or adjustments just because they feel more margin pressure coming. So financial services is not immune to that, and I think we all have to watch the environment and make the right long-term decisions for our organizations and for our shareholders. Whether it's headcount or otherwise, as you think about this kind of tougher economic environment, the uncertainty, do you think Goldman is going to have to pursue another round of cost cuts in any fashion? And if that were to be the case, where could you see them? Well, we, we always look at the environment and we always size the firm to the environment. If the environment gets tougher, we will obviously make decisions to size the footprint of the firm appropriately. That can come from slowing down hiring, which we've already done considerably in the second half of the year. Um, and that might also come from pruning in certain areas. So switching gears a little bit here, kind of broader financial services picture and talent war and whatnot. Last year, fintech, crypto firms booming. I'm curious whether the collapse of FTX is making you think in any fashion differently about crypto as an industry and the ability to potentially invest in some firms, maybe buy some assets here. Well, I've, I've been very clear on my view around this space. I think the underlying technology of blockchain is extremely interesting. I think there are enormous opportunities for blockchain to play a role in evolving the infrastructure of our financial system. I think there's an enormous amount of friction in the way money moves. I think there are a variety of ways that this technology can be used to allow more participation and inclusive participation in financial activities. I think it can break down barriers. That has nothing to do with Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency. I don't, I don't really you know, offer a view on, on cryptocurrencies. I think they're highly speculative. They may hold value, they may not. But I'm interested in the underlying technology and how the underlying technology can help serve our clients, our customers, 
and really take friction out of the financial system and also help make it more accessible. But the reality, too, is kind of Goldman was pretty early in the market here when it came to futures trading, when it came to the industry at large. Do you think that there's a chance to lean in or is there still too many regulatory risks? For well, you? We, we, when, when you say we're early, we've done a very narrow um, selection of things around this broad area because from a regulatory perspective, we're extremely limited in terms of our participation. Um, and I don't, I don't see that changing um, in the immediate future. And so we want to be available to give our clients advice and insight into how we think about some of these things. Um, but our activities are extremely limited in the space. I want to take a moment to realize it's about to be a big moment. You're five that you're becoming CEO here, that you've been running this firm for. Is there anything you didn't do in the first five years that will kind of be at the top of your list here to execute as you enter this kind of new phase? Well, we laid out, and I know you were there because you covered it as a reporter in our first investor day three years ago, a desire to grow the firm, to diversify its revenue base, and make it more durable, to operate the firm more efficiently. And in particular, we focused on the opportunities for us in asset management and wealth management. And on our recent reorganization, we've now got those businesses together. We run the fifth largest active asset manager in the world. We have a jewel of a wealth management business, and we see real opportunity in the coming years to continue to grow that. And so we're on a journey to diversify the firm. I think the thing that we're most proud of over the course of the first few years, and I think our team has done an extraordinary job, is at the time of that investor day, there was a lot of skepticism about our markets franchise, particularly our FIC franchise, the returns we could generate, our client position in that business, and we've really strengthened that business. That is a leading franchise that's performing very well. We've taken over 300 basis points of market share in that franchise, and that's really made the firm, it's our biggest business, it's made the firm much stronger. How do and you we've end? really focused, we've really focused, I'm sorry to, yeah, to interrupt you for a second, Smiley, we've really focused on the client experience and making sure that the way we serve our clients is really, really differentiated. And we're getting great feedback from, from clients on that, and that's strengthening our business. So we're on this journey to diversify the business, to strengthen the business. I think we've made a lot of progress, but we have a lot of work to do. And, um, and we continue to focus on, on growing and strengthening the firm. So you're leaning into so much of the core of Goldman Sachs. A couple of months ago, you announced this general realignment, let's say, of Marcus and the consumer strategy. Do you expect more big changes to be announced ahead as you have your next big investor day coming up? Do you think that you'll have a target here? Do you have any sense of when it can become profitable? Well, we, we made a very purposeful decision in this reorganization, which was a significant decision, to organize the business into three units, our asset and wealth management business, which we were just discussing, our banking and markets business, which I was highlighting the strength of the markets franchise, and obviously our investment banking franchise is a, is a leading franchise. And we took our platform businesses, transaction banking and our consumer platforms, and we put them together. We narrowed our focus purposefully on our consumer business and tried to align it with things that we think really play to our strength, whether it's the technology development of platforms, our relationship to enterprise businesses, and also in alignment with our wealth business. With that narrowed focus, we're gonna be very, very uh, attentive to making sure we scale those platforms and they're profitable as quickly as possible. David, year five, you look around um, all of corporate America, not just Wall Street, really, and you see so many companies, as they think about succession planning, the CEOs have had to come back <laughs> on multiple occasions. You see it at Disney, you've seen it at Carlisle. When it comes to Goldman Sachs, how are you thinking about succession planning now as you kind of move into this next part of your I, I career? Am, I, am, I am in year five. 
I've got a great team. We're working on all the things we were just talking about, and that's what I'm focused on. And there'll be a, you know, there'll be a time when it will be uh, someone else's turn to steward this great institution that's been around for 153, 154 years. And at that time, you know, we'll make the, we'll make the appropriate decisions. But for right now, this leadership team is really focused on continuing to grow and strengthen Goldman Sachs. And we feel like we've made a lot of progress, but we also feel like there's a lot that we can do. And we're excited to talk about some more of that in February. I'm looking forward to this investor day. Thank you so much for taking time with us on a really big day here at Goldman. You said 33-year conference? 33 years of the conference. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. It's back to you. Shanali Pridian, as always. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The latest from City, Tom. Yeah. A slowdown to a 50 basis point hike in December remains very likely, but we should expect Fed officials to guide towards higher terminal rates, and we maintain our call for another 50 basis point hike in February and a terminal range of 525 to 550. And here's the final line. With asymmetric upside risk. Yeah. That's the bottom line for yep. the team at City. And that is the key determinant. And let us be clear here at the end of the year in celebration that Andrew, can we all agree, Andrew Hollenhorst and his team? Yeah, phenomenal. Way out front. I would say this. City and Bank of America, yeah. I think, laughed at in spring of this year yeah. when they started to talk about how far <clears throat> right. this Fed might push it. It's turned out to be the yeah. right call. My, my, my basic take is Deutsche Bank had the recession call way early and Hollenhorst had the interest rate vector just Absolutely. Agreed. Uh, now, we got an update now. Mr. Hollenhorst of UCLA joins us, chief U.S. economist at Citigroup. Andrew, I'm going to cut to the chase. The fancy math, the ratio math of the Bloomberg Financial uh, Conditions Index is not good for Powell, goes against your thesis as well. We are accommodative. It's in research notes this morning. Ben Laidler over at eToro notes it off the Chicago Financial Conditions series as well. How much are those measurements going against? against the chairman of the Fed. I think you're right, Tom. It's going in the wrong direction, the wrong direction from what Chair Powell would like to see. I watch those conditions every morning, just like you, just like the viewers. And every morning I'm thinking, what is Chair Powell thinking when he sees this? I think that's true today. I think that was true after his comments at the Brookings Institution a week ago, uh, where I think he was trying to send a hawkish message or a neutral message and the market took it as dovish. Right. So it's just all more hawkish risk down the line. If we extend the X axis out, let's say we do that and we do move to a higher nominal rate, even more advanced real rates as well. Does that give our economy time to get used to a new higher rate regime? I think the idea with slowing down is it gives the Fed a chance to 
really evaluate in real time what has been the effect of raising interest rates, of tightening financial conditions. We see that in the housing sector. We see a housing sector that's going in reverse, house prices that are coming down. That's where interest rate policy is very potent and very effective. The issue that this Fed is facing is we have a really tight labor market and they're trying to loosen that labor market with a really blunt tool, which is interest rate policy. Not clear that that's moved far enough yet to see that loosening. Andrew, what are we missing? We keep thinking that there's going to be a much more sustained downturn, and yet the data keeps surprising. John was asking earlier, is this economy speeding up or slowing down? We can't tell based on some of the recent data. So what explains these surprises that we keep getting? So you've seen some areas of the economy slow down. We were talking about housing, which is going in reverse. Good spending in general has been a lot weaker, but really strong services spending. And when we keep seeing that spending data that's coming in strong, we think back to all of the savings that built up over the last couple of years. That's coming down now. The savings rate is historically low, but it looks like there may be even more of that excess savings to work through. You look at credit card balances, which are rising. That can't continue forever, but remember consumers were we're very under levered coming into this year. There's a lot of room to grow credit on consumer balance sheets. So that process is underway. All of that is stoking continued demand. And as long as that demand is out there, you're going to see firms that at the very least want to hold on to their existing workers. These were hard workers to hire. It's been a tight labor market. So again, very, very hard to, to loosen that labor market. Andrew, we're hearing about white collar workers that are getting laid off first, exactly to your point that the rank and file that actually make things go on a tangible level are needed and necessary. How much do you think that a soft landing is pretty much off the table, despite the fact that so many people are basically betting on that being the outcome? I think we just need to be really clear on this, Lisa, and, and it is an unfortunate reality to have to acknowledge, but the likelihood of a soft landing is quite low. Yes, it's possible. Yes, there's a hopeful scenario where you can get a soft landing and everybody would like to see that, but we need to be realistic. The balance of the historical evidence, as well as the fact that inflation is just running so high and it's so difficult to bring down inflation from these levels. I think if you acknowledge those facts and you acknowledge that we really do have a wage price spiral here. I know that it's very unpopular to say that, but there's no question wages are rising, prices are rising. There's an expectation that they continue to rise. It's a self-reinforcing dynamic that is likely going to take a recession to bring those inflationary forces back down. At what point is a financial accident going to be the trigger to some sort of more rapid decline rather than just sort of waiting for Godot, which is what a lot of people seem to be doing, and then confirming their experience or their expectation rather for some sort of downturn in specific data? I think that's where you kind of balance what's going on in financial markets and what's going on in the real economy. So like we were talking about, financial conditions tighten very aggressively, have now loosened from those tighter levels. And we've seen the economy slow down in sectors, but we haven't seen this broad slowing that's cooled demand and brought inflation down. So it, it could be the case that financial conditions just continue to tighten further, need to continue to tighten further from here. Then the risk that there's a more significant breakdown in the financial sector sector becomes higher. Uh, I would say that looking at the world today, looking at the U.S. in particular today, pretty clean consumer balance sheets, 
banks that are not over levered as well. All of that makes us feel more comfortable about the ability of the economy to withstand higher interest rates. But certainly those risks rise as you continue to fight, tighten but, the financial but conditions. But Andrew, what, what drives me nuts here, and maybe it's my fossildom, is, well, did you see what Senator Cassidy said to me yesterday? Do you want to repeat gonna, that for people who missed it? We, I, think we, I think we'll get <laughs> to that. Because I'm not saying we'll get it. To this in a He's like, I'm did on a weight loss program. <laughs> I go home, vet bill screaming at me on the Cassidy, the Cassidy diet. We'll talk about that in a minute. Andrew, older people like me know that we somehow survived a 5% terminal rate. The youth of America, including you, think we're all going to die. Come on. <laughs> Can't we survive where we're going to with a Citigroup call? Well, there's a really important concept, which I know we talk about all the time, but it's important to emphasize, which is the real interest rate, the nominal interest rate minus inflation. And that's really what I think Fed officials are focusing on more here. And we just saw in the wage data, wage growth that's 5% plus. We've known for some time and the price inflation data, price inflation is 5% plus. So when you look at that 5% interest rate, and you're noting at the top, we were saying 5% policy rates five and a half percent policy rates with upside risk to that. That's because just getting to 5% would get that real rate just back to zero. So if you think that real interest rates need to move positive, then the Fed would need to move potentially beyond that level. Um, and to your point, Tom, in an economy that's running high inflation, 5% plus interest rates should not be surprising. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Great call this year. No doubt we'll talk before year end. Andrew Hollenhorst there of City. Joining us now, Amy Will-Silverman, Equity Derivative Strategist at RBC Capital Markets. Amy, can we begin with a consensus view for next year? Here's a quote for you. Evidence of slowing core inflation, peaking official rates and signs of economic recovery should pave the way for more risk-taking in the second half of 2023. I want to be clear here, Amy, I'm not picking on any single bank. That is the consensus view for next year. Do you share it? Yeah, it's interesting uh, because I think if you looked at any outlook, it would say almost the same thing. And when I was in Europe last week speaking with clients, that is also their view. I would say that, you know, it's it's really hard, hard to say the options market, when we look at pricing to that term structure, it is sort of 50-50. Essentially, you know, no one is placing big bets yet that we'll see this, you know, miraculous second half rally. But certainly that's the sentiment that is being expressed, but it is nowhere in the position right. yet. Amy, honored to have you with us. I've never seen the physics envy I see in this year's set of outlooks. You and I can look at time series and go mathy and all that. Guess what? Predicting out to January to me seems as uncertain as gaming June or December. How do you interpret not the indecision, but the pivotness that we see, the nodes, the points along 2023 where things are going to happen. Who are we kidding? We can't predict that. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, Tom, and I think this year, more than any other year in the market, has really come down to positioning so much. Because if you think about it, last year, sentiment-wise, we were kind of in the same place. You know, there was a bearish outlook. We knew the Fed was going to go into a hiking cycle. But you saw that in equity skew. You saw that in your favorite word, in kurtosis, right? We saw so much hedging demand from last year the beginning of this year and you see none this year why is the positioning so different if the sentiment is the same i think because people remain off sides or they've gone touristing in other markets and you know equity is just not that there is no alternative world anymore 
What does the epsilon look like? That randomness, that systematic error off the backside of the algebra. What is the character of our uncertainty, our unknown? So, so here's where I would say I'm quite concerned in terms of tails. On the downside, what I've heard from a number of clients is a potential systemic risk in leveraged loans. You're starting to see that, uh, you know, specifically in BKLN, which is the proxy ETF. That's a big downside risk. Geopolitics continue to play a downside risk, Taiwan or Russia and Ukraine. Now, on the upside, it's much more general. People just cannot miss rallies. You're seeing this in zero day to expiry trading. And that tells me that the reach for upside remains the pain trade, even though the sentiment remains bearish. I think those tails are not priced. Everyone's between 3,900 and 4,100 on their price targets. And yet those tails remain something that we need to watch for next year. Amy, I'd love you to elaborate on those uh, systemic risks, whether it's leveraged loans, whether it's the private markets, which a lot of people have been pointing to, whether it's just interest rate swap, uh, overlaid currency debt issues that that we're seeing, or just currency swap overlaid on top of debt. And this is something the Bank of International Settlements has been pointing to. What are you most concerned about? What's the transmission mechanism to the broader market that hasn't already yet taken place? So I think it's two things. I think you know, especially on the credit side, when we speak to credit investors, they they know these risks are out there. For instance, you know, if downgrades by the rating agencies in the fourth quarter of next year cause something in leveraged loans, I think what the concern is, is if the positioning, as I mentioned prior, is really all to the upside, right? So all your demand is sitting on that call wing, then you're going to get quite a cycle when people start to need to reach for that downside, because that downside tail, you know, a three standard deviation drawdown on the market, we measure that with TDEX, is trading in its second percentile over five years. People people are not sitting on tails. They're not using downside protection right now. And so when that grab happens, I think it'll be quite violent. And when you have the VIX now, you know, back to a 20 handle, I think that can reflate quite quickly, Lisa. Amy, something I want to finish with is just to give you the opportunity to go over something you delivered a number of months ago. It was a note about why this market regime is going to come with more volatility, and that's going to stay with us for longer than many people think. Amy, can we finish there? What are you seeing and what have you seen through 2022 that you think we need to live with through 2023 and perhaps even beyond? Yeah, you know, I think one nuance that people forget because they're so fixated on where VIX goes from 30 to 40 is actually that if you've noticed all year, VIX essentially hasn't dropped below 20. So it's not necessarily that we're spiking the higher levels. During the pandemic, we hit a VIX of 80. It's that our floor has simply gotten higher. Our VIX is not moving below 20. And as a result of that, you know, the correlation component to volatility, it's a big component to old index volatilities, has remained high and I think will continue to remain high if that fixed floor does not come down from that 20 handle. I think we remember the years, Tom, when the floor was 10. Was that four or five years ago? Exactly. Or, yeah, 12. Oh, it's, it's a yeah. big change. Yeah. It's a big, yeah. big change, that's for sure. It, it's a big, big change, you know, to, under, to, to take the rally from a 31-ish into a 20, a better market, a lower VIX as well. But I, I really have trouble framing, John, other than a massive bull market. How do you get from 20 to 17? That 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 There's a lot of inertial force that has to be overcome there. Amy's been brilliant. Amy, thank you for being with us. Amy with Silverman there <clears throat> of RBC Capital Markets. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Now a joy. Edward Morse honed hydrocarbon analysis in the street in a small shop called Lehman Brothers years ago. He did this off of his academic work at Princeton, his political economic work on oil over many decades, and now holds shop with Global Head of Commodities Research at Citigroup. We're thrilled he could join us today. With Ed, the call of the year. Let's go the other way. What did the $100 over a barrel people get wrong? They got wrong uh, both supply and demand, but more more on the demand side. I mean, this was supposed to be a year, depending on whose projection you're looking at, that was going to continue that five or six percent demand growth uh, post pandemic, and it just fritted out. It fritted out largely because of something nobody expected, namely uh, the pace of the slowdowns and the recessions emerging in the mm-hmm. three largest economies in the world: China, the U.S., uh, and obviously Europe. So. Uh, the demand side really is the the the, the big killer on this. Uh, we're looking at probably maybe 1.7% uh, demand growth this year compared to projections of 4, 4% or above. Right. Well, what's interesting, Ed, to me is the prices we come down and everyone's rationalizing along the way to a price point where Riyadh reacts or Washington reacts, et cetera. What is the price point you have in your head where this becomes painful for the oil winners? Uh, well, the price point when it becomes really painful is going to be below 65. There's plenty of oil that can be productively uh, uh, you know, exploited at 70. Uh, we start getting into... Uh, some fields that just don't work at 65, but uh, it gets unbelievably painful below 55. But we still have, and you just remarked on it, uh, the U.S. government having indicated it might start buying oil if WTI falls below 70. And I think that's the first test. I think OPEC has said, hey, we're going to stick to this. We're not going to change forecasts. Uh, we're not going to change our, our, uh, our oil projections of what we're putting in the market. Uh, maybe evaluate them in February, the next time their JMMC, the monitoring committee meets. So uh, I think the next political move on managing the market will be up to the U.S. Ed, up to the U.S. How so? What are you looking for? Well, I I, I go back to uh, the president's point that uh, at $70 a barrel, they can start buying back oil for the strategic reserve. Uh, and that's meant as an encouragement to the industry to keep drilling and to keep producing. So uh, we'll, it'll be a test to see what happens uh, and whether the president is serious about this or thinks that, hey, maybe this is the time when we're really getting off of oil uh, oh. because demand for it may be falling you know, faster than people thought. Why are we talking about the downside surprise at a time when China is potentially reopening, when these headlines don't seem to be moving the needle at all, even though this is definitely a big concern and people thought that perhaps it could send oil prices to $125 a barrel on Brent? Well, I take exception to that. You know, we had the China news that really did move the market. 
It moved the market up a little bit higher than the fundamentals warranted. And now we're having the good news in the U.S., the good news about the economy, which is really bad news in terms of the commodity markets, because it indicates that the Fed is going to keep going and raising the prices at the prior level that people thought. Uh, so the dollar gets more expensive, the economy slows down more, and demand for oil falls. So I think the, uh, the market is responding to news. It's just today's news is the good news in the U.S. Last week's news was the good news in China. But it's also this week, uh, this week that we're getting some news about China perhaps loosening some of the testing requirements in Beijing after reducing them in Shanghai just yesterday. How much does this sort of come together in something that does accelerate demand more than perhaps the base case? Or is that not even on the table because of how much the Russian barrels are coming back on? I just am not understanding the price action at all right now, uh, based on some of the narratives people have been saying for a while? Well, the first thing you have to remember about the price action is liquidity has dried up even more than it already dried up. People are fleeing the market because of the level of market uncertainty and because we're getting toward the end of the year. And those who made money this year don't want to lose any come the end of the year. So liquidity has dried up. And when liquidity dries up, you get an incredible volatility coming out in the market. I think that's a, a very important point. The second point is the uncertainty about Russian oil. Uh, we thought that there was going to be a significant increase in demand for uh, oil from other sources uh, as Europe moved off of Russian oil. We actually had that, and it was an incredible increase in exports out of the United States. A week ago, the print was about 11,700,000 barrels a day of gross exports of crude oil and petroleum products out of the U.S. The U.S. has been replacing those Russian mm -hmm. barrels, and uh, you know we've had our inventories fall on the crude side, but they're rising on the product side. Uh, you know, this was supposed right. to be a period of time when diesel demand was going to be high and diesel cracks were going to stay at 40. And now diesel cracks are going down and we're actually building an inventory. Right. So the data are mixed, but they're, they're, you know, they're equally bearish as they are bullish. Right. Ed Morris, I want to touch back on your uh, years of work with Woodrow Wilson at Princeton and Johns Hopkins and the rest as well. We have a miracle happening today. The president of the United States is going to attempt to turn the inertial force of globalization on its ear by traveling out to Arizona, where we're going to build semiconductors. From where you sit with your decades of experience, can we be successful in stealing back manufacturing processes from around the world? Uh, actually, I think we can. And uh, you mentioned uh, deglobalization effectively. We're not going to see trade growing the way it did in the uh, in the go-go years in 1990 to 2010. We're seeing all three major economies, China, the U.S., and Europe, putting blockages on trade and being a little bit protective. Here, there's a coincidence of interest between the U.S. and Europe based on what the Europeans are calling their CBAM, uh, their carbon border adjustment mechanism. Having the U.S. effectively putting the same CBAM on China uh, helps them competitively. Uh, so there's a, 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 a commonality of interest there. China's pulling back on trade because of energy security issues, and you might say commodity security issues. They want more made at home or more imported, not by seaborne trade, but by on-land trade, hence the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, hence the new pipelines uh, from Russia and the like. So we're seeing all three major economies pulling back from globalization getting those supply chains at home. And uh, I think that's an important shift that's going to dominate the next decade. And I just want to squeeze this in just to blend two stories. She and Riyadh this week, 
what are you expecting from that meeting? The, the, the one thing you can expect is, uh, you know, greater ties on the oil market side. Uh, China and the Saudis already have an agreement on putting in uh, new refining, uh, testing out the Saudi technology to convert uh, oil directly into uh, petrochemicals. Uh, petrochemicals is where the growth and demand is going to be. Uh, the Saudis have a, uh, an answer there. So, uh, so I think it's going to be uh, partly about uh, the world, partly about new align alignments. Uh, the, the alignments are not going to, you know, be totally solidly moving to the uh, to the east for the Saudis. If you look at where their interests are in terms of uh, issuing bonds, in terms of uh, putting out shares on the IPOs of their state-owned enterprises, uh, they can't go away from London and New York. Uh, they can't get what they can get in London and New York provided by either Moscow or Beijing. But it is a move solidifying uh, that line of, uh, of uh, purchasing of oil. The Saudis are there to provide oil that is kind of uh, under the table. It's meant to go into, into strategic stocks. The Chinese want, as the prices go down, to get their strategic stockpile built up to the level they want. They have Russia that's selling oil at a distress and they're seeing what they can get from the Saudis as well. Ed, wonderful to catch up with you, sir. And wonderful call in the last couple of months. Ed Moss there huge. of City. And I'm not going to mince words. This is newly minted at the Keene household. I feel lucky to have this. This is the fancy iPhone. For those of you on radio, it's a what we call Faro Purple, and it's we it's call sort it that Faro Purple. Yeah, it's like Why? sort of like the Tots uniform, the kit that they the, have. The away the third, kit. The away kit. Thank you. But um, I feel lucky to have this. The demand is so great that it's hard to find. Was there a waiting list? And, yeah, I had to wait like weeks. And the answer is, they want to bring. The stuff in here, the magic in here, over to America. That's all there is to it. Very cool. We're going to talk about that today. Tim Cook of Apple and other worthies will join the president of the United States in Barry Goldwater's Arizona. There's a calculus here of science and technology, chips and security. Brian Deese, the director of National Economic Council for the president, is with us for an early morning brief before he travels to Arizona. I want to get right to the political economics of this, Brian, that you studied at Middlebury, which is, lo and behold, a Democratic runaway in Arizona, hearkening back to even 1950. If the president moves for investment, does that bring Democratic votes? I mean, is this a political victory lap for the president as well as a science victory lap? Well, the most impactful thing I've learned today is your color choices, Tom. But uh, what this is today is an, uh, a big milestone for the country for economic and national security reasons. As you said, inside that iPhone, but also importantly inside military applications, inside our most advanced computing applications, are these leading edge semiconductors. And today, we produce none of them in the United States, zero. Yeah. So TSMC's announcement today signals the beginning of building out that American supply chain. And the other thing we're gonna be doing in Phoenix, though, is underscoring that we're seeing this across the board. It's not just in semiconductors, it's in clean energy innovation, it's in upgrading infrastructure. So you see across the Phoenix area, 
big investments in electric vehicle batteries, in, um, in, in the, the fiber that will lay for uh, broadband across the country. That does bring big economic benefits and I think a renewed right. sense of economic optimism to places like Phoenix. There has to be an inertial tip point where you push against all the foreign manufacturer. What is your timeline, Brian? I mean, let's be honest, we're really not moving the global semiconductor needle here, but out there somewhere is where America gets a critical mass in manufacturing these complex processes, including lithium batteries. How long is the DEEZ timeline to get to where we move the semiconductor needle? Well, look, these are big projects, and the key in this industry is scale. So that doesn't happen overnight. Building one of these fabs, like the president will see today, is a very complicated multi-year process. But the good news is that we now have enacted these long-term incentives. And I think that's one of the key pieces to understand about what we accomplished legislatively here in both clean energy and semiconductors. We now have incentives in place for multiple years, a decade really, and that gives private companies and private capital the ability to move in and move quickly. A lot of people say, well, but you know, we may not see the benefits of this for a couple of years, but we're seeing it right now in companies pulling forward investment and deciding to invest in the United States. So while the full timeline to build out the supply chain, to produce chips here in the United States, to produce batteries here in the United States, that's a multi-year project. We are seeing in ways that a lot of people didn't think was possible activity, and that activity will result in economic opportunity in 2023. Brian, how concerned are you, how concerned is the president with some of the tension that this has caused with European allies who say that this is investment not going into Europe, that this is anti-competitive and really draws a lot more dollars to the U.S. and a lot more of the tech industry? Well, the president had a good conversation with President Macron uh, on that topic and other European uh, leaders as well. A couple of points. The first is the president makes no apology for the fact that his economic strategy is focused on generating more economic opportunity, more economic security and resilience for our economy uh, and our workers. At the same time, the opportunity globally for the U.S. leadership in these areas is quite significant. You know, in semiconductors, clean energy, these are areas where the world is short supply. We need more electric vehicle batteries globally. We need more semiconductors globally. So when the United States invests, pulls forward innovation, that lowers cost. That makes it easier to deploy in other jurisdictions as well. So certainly we're going to work with our partners and allies. Where there are concerns, we can sit down and talk about them. But the president's strategy here, an industrial strategy to make the United States an attractive place to invest, but also pull forward innovation and reduce cost, is one that will have benefits for the whole world. One of the problems with creating some of these policies historically has been that it has to be a longer term basis for that investment to bear fruit for those factories to actually take a stance. How important is consistency? And I say this at a time when President Biden, Ron Klain, was talking about this in the past couple of days, is expected to announce a running again. And members of the Economic Council, Cecilia Rouse, I know, has talked about leaving uh, the council and others. I know that there have been rumors about yourself. How much is that important to kind of keeping things on the rails? Well, you're raising a really important point, which is, if we're gonna provide long-term incentives and certainty for private capital to invest here in the United States, we need policy certainty. But one of the important elements of what we got done over the course of the past year is that most of what we passed has broad bipartisan support. It certainly has bipartisan support outside Washington. You look at the Chips and Science Act, 
had brought uh, bipartisan support in Congress as well. You've got Democrats and Republicans, but also uh, people, business leaders from across the country, from the center of the country, from the coasts, all kind of buying into this idea that having the United right. States as a leader in clean energy manufacturing, a leader in semiconductor production, that is a worthwhile right. long-term national investment. That'll help provide that stability that private investors need. You know, Brian, I love that you were wearing Hugo Boss to the state dinner the other night with Mr. Macron and all. You were enjoying your Rouge River blue cheese. Let me cut to the chase, Brian. How's our trade relationship with the French as we talk about technology and all that? How are we doing? Look, I think the relationship as a whole is very strong and certainly undergirded by a great state visit. And it's always important when the two leaders have an opportunity to really sit with each other, spend time, break yeah, bread, I'll, and that happens here. Yeah. We have, look, you know, uh, we have our challenges, but we also are able as two, uh, two countries to lift up. And there were really poignant moments, for example, at the state dinner uh, with the toasts of the two leaders marking just how our two countries have been there for each other when it really matters. And obviously with Ukraine uh, and the, 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 the fight in Europe, the United States is proving once again that it's a reliable ally. We're going to have our concerns. We're right. going to have the issues that we're going to discuss. Uh, but, you know, overall, I think the relationship is quite in a, right. quite a strong place. Can you confirm he was actually in Hugo Boss? I think he was with, wearing with, Hugo Boss. With Arno in the building. You know, you know, Arno's in the building. I can, and I can, I can, wearing Boss. You know. I can, I can confirm definitively it wasn't Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, can you confirm definitively you're staying with the administration? Can we wrap that one up? I, I can confirm that I'm totally focused on the work we have to do. We have a lot to do here between now and the end of the year. That's where my focus is. I can confirm you kind of dodged that one, but we'll I let can it go. confirm that as well. <laughs> Brian, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. I, Brian Deester of the National the Economic Council. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.